Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. The U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, they rank Connecticut as the second wealthiest state in the nation. But then, according to the Economic Policy Institute, Connecticut ranks third in the country for income inequality. Residents struggling to make ends meet, advocates where we live have called for systemic changes to housing, health care, and education, and the way those basic needs are funded. Now, for the first time under a new law, the state's budget's required to show how spending reduces socioeconomic and racial inequities in our state. That new budget law was passed last spring, calling for a, quote, explanation of how provisions under uh, further the governor's efforts to ensure equity in the state, helping to identify and remedy past and present patterns of discrimination. So how did Governor Lamont's 50-plus billion-dollar budget meet this mandate and what's missing? This hour, we'll be tackling all the tricky topics, including housing, health care, and higher education. But first, let's talk big picture with our panel of experts. Right now joining me are Dan Haar, Associate Editor, Hearst Connecticut Media, Media and CT Insider. Good morning, Dan. Great to be here. I hope the oatmeal is just tasting fantastic this morning. It is. And now we also got my my great friend. You're going to find her on Twitter at L.A. Hagen, Lisa Hagen, the federal policy reporter for the Connecticut Mirror and Connecticut Public. Hey, great to be back. Awesome to have you back as well. And if you're listening to this conversation right now, why don't you join us? 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR. We can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Dan. Because of this new law we got that we just mentioned, there are certain requirements I think the state has to hit, right? I mean, how did Governor Lamont apply the law to the biennial budget proposal? Well, basically what the governor did was he added an eight-page section of narrative to the introduction of his budget. And, of course, I don't want to belittle it. It's not just an eight-page section. It is the eight-page section in which he says, here's what the governor and here's what the state, here through this proposed budget, Uh, will do and is doing to address inequities in the system. I want to be really careful to to, to distinguish between the word inequity and inequality. Uh, Inequality is in the law, and uh, the law does ask the state require that the governor identify and remedy past and present patterns of discrimination or inequality against and disparities in outcomes for a protected class. So there's lots of stuff in there. And his main argument is, well, gee whiz, the main way we raise money is the income tax. And it's very, very progressive. That's number one. How loosely can this law be interpreted? So like uh, when he's showing his work like he he has it in eight pages, is there a certain way he could do it? Is it, 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 you get the idea of how I'm talking about how he can loosely interpret it? 
Well, as as I was rereading it last night, and we essentially we heard it in the form of the state of this the the budget speech that the governor gave, and the state of the state a month ago, month and a half ago. So, the, in other words, the the points he's making, you know, this is politics. The, we're helping people. That's what you talk about. Whether the law says you have to talk about helping people or you have to talk about helping people because you're a politician, you're going to talk about it. And this is what he's doing. Um, and so I was thinking about how if the most conservative Republican or Democrat who favors the least redistribution of wealth were required to do this, he or she would say, we're building, excuse me, we're building jobs. And by adding to the economy, by not spending money on social programs, the governor could say he doesn't, but he could say, I'm helping inequity in this state because I'm helping build a strong economy by not spending state money. He could say that. So in essence, so, so in essence, it could broad? be it could be a little a little opportunity for for a speech at the top of the budget or a or a or a way to, you know, uh, inject politics, I guess, into into the budget as well. That's exactly right, except yeah. that it takes it takes more to read eight pages of a speech than to listen to 20 minutes. But it's essentially <laughs> it's essentially the same thing. And he goes over program by program. Yeah. Hey, Lisa, I want to throw a couple of things at you here uh, to give you an idea of the situation where we live. United Way of Connecticut, they project the basic survival budget for a family of four exceeds ninety thousand dollars per year. And spoiler alert, not everybody in Connecticut uh, not every household in Connecticut makes anywhere near $90,000 a year. And I guess uh, prior to the pandemic, the organization projected 38% of Connecticut residents were living paycheck to paycheck or falling behind. Thanks to uh, CT Mirror's longtime budget reporter, Keith Fanna, for that reporting. And on the equity front, too, by the way, some of these families that are making $90,000 a year, a majority of them are white. And and black households, as I understand in the state that I've seen in reporting, are making about fifty eight thousand, and Latina and Hispanic households are making like fifty four thousand. So, and and some of this is using Alice methodology, which factors the cost of childcare, healthcare, utilities, other factors. The federal poverty level does not. So, Lisa, with all that being said, take that ball of wax I just threw at you. What can you tell me about what politicians are saying about equity in Connecticut? Yeah, it, it's hard because, you know, you look at a state like Connecticut, and I think in some ways it's positioned better than many other states on this front. And at large, I mean, a lot of the national conversation on this just isn't, it's being talked about in Congress, but it's really not going many places. And you see that in terms of Connecticut looking at minimum wage just being higher and that just being stagnant at the national level. But obviously, in all the, in all the data you're citing, there's still vast income inequality in the state. And so I, I think a point that we'll all be kind of making in this hour is that a lot of these issues were addressed temporarily in an emergency way through pandemic measures and a lot of that funding coming from the national level. And so a lot of that's just drying up and going away. And so it, it, it was a little bit of a Band-Aid. It, kind of, it uh, kind of rectified in terms of like, let's say the child tax credit at the federal level it uh, moved over and got lifted millions of children out of poverty. But again, a lot of this stuff is going away or has gone away. And so I think uh, at least in terms of how Connecticut addresses this, this is going to come at the state level and not the national level because Congress is just in a really politically difficult environment. Ah, and let's go straight there. Let's go straight there. Before I get Dan in here, I want to I I ask you this very pointed question, Lisa. 
do politicians care about equity right now? I, 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 I mentioned this offhand to you earlier, but I was asking you about a current Ukraine offline uh, because we, we once again care about Ukraine because we're getting closer to the one-year anniversary. And then you have people showing up to the State of the Union and essentially treating it as if we're back in election season. It's only been three months since we had the midterm. So are we just in a perpetual state of politics and we're going to get whatever done on equity done whenever we do? What What are your thoughts? Yes, short answer, yes. I, I think a lot of people go into this obviously wanting to address income inequality and issues you know, revolving around equity. But I just don't see at least the next two years much of that getting done because, again, a lot of a lot of those issues were addressed through pandemic laws that are, again, you know, phasing out or only going to be with us for so long. And then you saw, you know, Democrats in Congress passing the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a catch all for a lot of these things, whether it was trying to solve some equity issues, whether it's health care or, or taxes. And that'll be you know drawn out through the next several years and potentially over at least into sort of this decade, but I just don't see a lot of that coming through. And so again, it's it's interesting watching everything happening at the state level in Connecticut, because I think that's where we're going to see potentially more movement. Dan, get in here. Uh, on I this. don't agree. But, well, listen, I agree with some of what Lisa said, but I would like to be more optimistic than to say that just because the $6 trillion in pandemic money is winding down, that this economy has no mechanism for addressing equity. I disagree with that in the sense that if we start creating jobs at a clip of 500000 a month, which the U.S. did hit uh, once, and that's an amazing number. But even if we average 300,000 month, a month nationally, and if Connecticut grows jobs at a rate of 2%, right, which is what's been happening, if that continues because the economy is sparked, then that's an awfully good mechanism for, for, for changing equity. But we have to really go back a step here. And when I mentioned at the top, there's a difference between equity and equality, inequality. Um, inequality is, of course, the measure of the difference between the rich and the poor. So Connecticut has a whole lot of very rich people, and that's why we're the most or the second most unequal state. Um, But if Ray Dalio, who just retired and harvested a couple of billion dollars from his hedge fund, moves with his wife to, to California or Florida or someplace else, do you feel better? No, of course you don't, because you're gonna have to now pay taxes that he's paying and she's paying. So, but yet the state would be more equal. Equality shouldn't be the goal. Equity should be. Equity is fair. Fairness. What is a fair way for people to live when they work hard? And that's really what we have to address. And I do think the economy can do that without $6 trillion, although the programs that those money are pay- that money is paying for are real and do help people. So it's both sides of the coin. J- just for the uninitiated, the Dalios, uh, Barbara and Ray Dalio, they had that, that foundation that collaborates with, for, for a while they collaborated with the Department of Education, and that was a, a big story in and of itself. But uh, they they have their philanthropic efforts or, or whatever, uh, and that's what kind of Dan was, uh, was alluding to there. But no, I want to go back to I think I think the point, though, that Lisa's making, and I think it's a valid one, is that Connecticut's on its own, like the the pandemic relief that that may be drying up. And and can we really count on Congress to do anything right now that benefits anybody other than their own political standing? I think I think that's a point that's being made. Am I wrong, Lisa? No. And I I take Dan's point very well. And it's it's, you know, the pandemic relief, I mean, it's supposed to 
put in place certain structures that can exist beyond, you know, this however many years it was going to put money into states and at the national level. So, but yeah, it's just things are just really tricky in Congress right now. It's it was nearly impossible to pass a lot of these things that I just spoke about. And it's only going to get harder over the next two years. And so my point looking at Connecticut is that I think a lot of this is just going to emanate from the state rather than the national level, though I'm sure Congress will continue to try. Lisa, do you think infrastructure, is the infrastructure bill going to help? I think so. I I guess in terms of inequality, maybe I look more to the Inflation Reduction Act about kind of smoothing some of that over and, and trying to solve more equity issues, especially when you look at something like yeah, go go right there and, and help us understand how Connecticut fits into the uh, Inflation Reduction Act as well. Yeah, I, I mean, in looking at, you know, healthcare specifically, again, you know, my, my my point always with Congress is going to be that things always have to get pared down and go through negotiations. Hmm. So uh, overall, in terms of the healthcare picture, you know, we saw some Affordable Care Act subsidies get extended for several years. So that's going to have a short-term to medium-term impact, but on the whole, they couldn't get a lot done for just the average person being insured. And so a lot of that uh, is going to be helpful for people who are in Medicare, so it's seniors. And so uh, that obviously very important, but it's just these things are, you know, in smaller silos and are going to take several to five to 10 years to implement. So uh, I, I think it addressed a lot of these issues that we're talking about, but beyond that, I don't know what else could come nationally. That's just to be seen. It's funny that Lisa works in one of these areas in the nation that is the largest disparity in terms of economics, or excuse me, in, in the distribution of wealth uh, in the nation down in D.C. And we're up here where Fairfield County is is among the top three as well. And I remember when I was covering child care, I did this big cut line for Connecticut Public last year on child care and the importance on mental health and the development of children. And I was told that a lot of these folks that are in D.C., they've probably paid some some au pair or something like that or, or a family member or whatever, all the money to watch their kids. They didn't have to worry about these kind of things. They're really kind of closed off for these conversations that are really important that people have to, to try to figure out how to make ends meet. So, like... Are we just in a situation, Dan and Lisa, where our politicians, our lawmakers are just so disconnected from where the rest of us are? Is that why we have inequality? No. Show me a successful region and I'll show you inequality. That's, it, it, inequality is, the, is, a, is a fake measure of prosperity. Equity in the sense that if you go to work 40 hours a week, 50 if you're a journalist, 100, uh, if you go to work and do you get a fair wage and can you live a decent life? The fact that there are billionaires floating around making the world an unequal place to me is 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 not the picture that we need to be looking at. And, and, and so government has a limited ability to control inequality. It has a seriously a strong role in controlling how to make people's lives better in a way that's fair. And so those are two different things. Uh, that's just one quick observation. I brought up Lisa the the fact that Fairfield County has the, has this this big disparity, and so does uh, the D.C. area. I think it's Alexandria, Virginia, to be uh, to be exact. But are there are there any other uh, are, are are we are we so different from from everybody else? Where's Connecticut stand in your in your estimation from some of the yeah. other folks you're talking to down there? Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. No, D.C. is 
very has very similar issues where you have I mean, D.C. is just weird in the sense that we are federal government and then also operate as a normal city, which people tend to forget about. And it's extreme uh, income inequality there. And, you know, you bring up Fairfield County. And I think about Jim Himes and I have talked about this a bit where his district is just it is the richest and some of the poorest. And it's just that is I think Connecticut fits right in with a lot of places, D.C. included and around the country that are that are dealing with this. And I don't, you know, I, I think we all, and myself maybe included, look at things or think that politicians are looking at things pretty cynically. Um, and I, you know, I just take to Dan's point that, you know, there are just, there's some things that, you know, government and Again, as I make the point again, that the state will have to kind of contend with over over Congress. Yeah, we're gonna go. We're gonna go right to Dan back on this one. Uh, okay, so we have we have we have baby bonds, right? Well, this is a great example, I think, and you could tell me if I'm wrong. But you have baby bonds, which is we had Eric Russell on uh, on a program last week on disrupted. Kalila Brown Dean hosts it, and he's saying, "Hey, we're looking forward to the launch of baby bonds." And then you have Jeff Beckham. Uh, speaking essentially on behalf of of the of the governor, Jeff Beckham uh, runs OPM. He says it's off the table essentially. So why why would baby bonds be off the table? Why wouldn't that be something that we would support? Something that can give people of color or people that are born into poverty a chance to invest or whatever in the future? Why would that well, be first, off the table? First of all, baby bonds are not off the table. Baby bonds are not in the planning, the strategic planning of this governor. This governor is a significantly powerful governor, but he's not all powerful. And there are maybe 50 to 60 legislators who strongly prefer baby bonds, and they tend to vote similarly to each other often, meaning they have significant power. One of them is Senator Marilyn Moore from Bridgeport. I called her after Jeff Beckham addressed us and talked about baby bonds. And I said, are you sitting down? I'm going to play a tape for you. And I played a recording of what he said. And that's when she hit the roof and said, oh, no, that's not over. This fight goes on. Baby bonds are important precisely because of what the three of us have been talking about. There is a difference in inequality and equity sure. between asset-based that is what you own and income-based measures. Income is how much money you make. Assets is really what makes the rich rich. It's not income, right? Baby bonds is the one and only government program that addresses the differential in assets by having somebody at birth get a, a sum of money that grows when that person becomes a young adult. That's why it's so important to so many people. This governor doesn't like it, to answer your question, because he'd rather spend the money now on things to make people's lives better now. That's not wrong or right. Jeff Beckham saying the governor does not support this program. It's $50, $50 million in bonding for the program uh, in, in, in FY 2025. Uh, he says we're not making any new proposals with regard to that program in this budget. So, Let me clarify. He's saying we're never going to allocate that $50 million. The law says we have to authorize it. We are authorizing it. We're not going to spend it. That's what he's saying. Where's Senator Marilyn Moore from? Bridgeport. Bridgeport. Yeah, they gotta, maybe they could distribute some of that wealth that they have in Fairfield to, to Bridgeport. Oh, there you go. That's a, that's a, that's an idea. <laughs> the, the mirror, uh, the, the, uh, I, I just want to, I just really want to go back here, I guess, I guess to the grand, grand thing that we're trying to talk about, Dan, here is a lot of people have been saying that there's this $3.3 billion rainy day fund and then maybe 3.1 in surplus. Uh, we have so about probably six and a half billion, something like that in surpluses. 
do we really have a surplus if we have such an unfunded obligations in the future that may total something like $88 billion or something like that? Can you tackle equity with this money if you have all this happening in the future that that's staring you down? Yeah, that's what uh, President Johnson called guns and butter. We can do both. Uh, this governor believes that you can cut taxes by $600 million. You can very slightly improve social spending, not nearly enough to satisfy the people in the legislature who want those programs beefed up, uh, to Lisa's point, and that you can also pay down that pension. Remember, paying down the pension liability, we don't feel it right now, but it acts as a tax cut for every eight for every $100 million you pay down, and he's paid down $5.8 billion. So for every $100 million, you get $8.5 million a year for 25 years knocked off of your liability. So it's a, it's a great investment, and that's what the governor's trying to do, both things. And just back to Keith Fanoff's reporting, he says that Connecticut's one of the most indebted states per capita in the nation with more than $88 billion in bonded debt. That's not Keith Banner's reporting. That's fact. That's yeah, what that's, fact. that's what the treasurer okay. and the and the controller have said. Eighty-eight billion is the most recent report in 2022. I knew that get the uh, oatmeal, the stew in your stomach a little. Yeah, bit. you're like, let's keep that. That's a public figure. The, the eighty-eight million is is a number that's out, billion. Yeah, is a number that's out there. Sadly, what happens as we pay it down, it doesn't necessarily decline because market conditions and all kinds of other factors go into it. So we haven't seen the progress that we need to see. We're talking about uh, at the. I just want to finish up here for this segment. We're talking about uh, one proposal I've heard. It doesn't sound like it's going to go anywhere, but one proposal I've heard is to get the this this could contribute to equity in, in some way uh, the to get the minimum wage up, which just re- recently was raised up to fifteen dollars an hour to twenty five dollars an hour for certain workers. So I don't I'm not sure where that's going to go. It doesn't sound like anybody that I talked to on both uh, in in really all the all the caucuses uh, are. I guess uh, interested in getting this through. So, so Lisa, though, it sounds like in in our talks with you before the show that Connecticut's actually doing a decent job on minimum wage compared to the rest of the nation. Yes, and compared to nationally, I mean, it it has been stagnant at seven twenty five at a federal minimum wage for a very long time, and so there's been you know talk and efforts in Congress to get it up to fifteen, which really wouldn't even if it were to pass, which it. it just installed, it wouldn't change things for Connecticut too much. And so I think where things could be really interesting in a national and both state dialogue is on the sub-minimum wages, is lifting minimum wage for tipped workers. It's those people, especially in the service industry, who get lower than a minimum wage and it's supposed to be replaced and, and covered by the tips that you make. And so I think that is one interesting facet of all this that uh, I know at least is happening in Connecticut and, and at least been talked about at the national level. Yeah, the, the federal minimum wage is, is what we're what you're alluding to there. I think uh, I said $15. It is almost $15. That's the plan. It's, a, it's to get it to $15 by, I think, this fiscal year. So right now it's like uh, 14 or 14.25 or something like that. The federal minimum wage, is there any any chance that that goes up soon? Lisa, have you heard any talks about that? Most likely not. It is something that was brought up in the last Congress, and that's when Democrats had all of, you know, had all of Congress and in addition to the, the White House. And so that, you know, that didn't really go anywhere. That was one of the issues that were important to Democrats and especially progressives. And I just don't see it going anywhere currently. But 
again, it's this is something where maybe Connecticut leads a little bit more compared to the nation or some other states. Dan and Lisa, I'm going to have you guys stay with us. We're going to dig into the education conversation, the maybe the higher ed conversation uh, on equity after a quick break. Jonathan Wharton, political science professor at Southern Connecticut State University, is going to join us. And you can join us in the conversation, 888-720-9677. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I am Frankie Graziano. 700 students and UConn allies, including this gentleman who has a, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me, sign blaming the governor in the state of Connecticut about the budget, flooded the state capitol a week ago, making headlines protesting Governor Lamont's budget allotment for the university system that the group said was short $357 million. Lamont he maintains the budget for Connecticut, or excuse me, UConn, and higher ed was historic. Joining us now to discuss the standoff and the larger issue of education in the context of this conversation around equity, Jonathan Wharton, the preppy prof, professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University and associate dean at the School of Graduate and Professional Studies. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? How are we doing in Brantford this morning? Uh well, actually, I'm on campus today. So. Oh, he's on campus. Yeah. Yep. Ready for a day of learning. And, Indeed. And also with us still, Lisa Hagen, our federal policy reporter uh, for us in uh, Connecticut Mirror, and Dan Haar, associate editor of CT Insider and Hearst Connecticut Media. And if you want to join us, I don't see any calls coming in. So if you want to call us right now, I'd probably get you on pretty quickly. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. Um, Dan, I, I want to, you guys both wrote columns on this. You said the numbers tell two stories and that clearly this fight over money is more than just about money. What does that mean? Well, the fight over money is about the, the strategic direction of the state. And in UConn's case, I've covered budget disputes for 35 years or so, I guess. I don't know, maybe hundreds of them. 
and uh, certainly one every year in every jurisdiction I've ever covered plus then. And I've never seen a dispute where there is not agreement about what is on the table as is either a budget cut or a budget increase. And thanks to the pandemic uh, spending, that's exactly what we have. Because if you take away this pandemic spending, which was meant to be one time but wasn't, and if you add in the base and make it higher, do you have an increase or a decrease? It's, a, it's almost like a metaphysical question. So we have to get past that first. And that was the subject, of course, of the big protest last week. Yeah, just to, but this kind of goes more to the federal thing. I mean, like we relied so much on on federal pandemic dollars to 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 fix the budget, but and exactly and, right. and 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 the governor got killed for it. But it was it was it was excuse me, he got killed from it by Republicans. But it was a, a unique way to make sure that the balance was balance the, the budget was balanced and people were taken care of. But are now are we now seeing that? Uh, there's got to be some more creativity or 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 more of a way to attack the budget now that those dollars have drawn up. I guess the better question is, is there now urgency, guys? Well, it's a short term, uh, at least way to address the, the problems that have been not just with UConn, of course, if I can make a pitch, certainly for Connecticut State University system, too, because, uh, you know, they were also uh, face a shortfall and, and will be uh, per proposed budget. I think the other thing, too, Frankie, and Dan knows this way more than I could ever is that, you know, it's interesting timing that this came up now in February when things have not been finalized and we have to wait through the spring to see how this goes through the process. Uh, you know, this is only the beginning step for what could take place uh, in the General Assembly. So, uh, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see for the next couple of months to see how this flushes out, because is this going to be something where the legislature is going to step into the fray and then find a way to, to deal with these, uh, you know, uh, budget concerns are supposed to be short term and extended or are they going to go with uh, Lamont's and their official numbers? Um, you know, I, I don't know. Right. How can anybody have a crystal ball in seeing and sorting out how this will be, uh, you know, for the spring? We're going to talk more about the columns in a second. I just want to go back to uh, and Dan reported this. Uh, I want to I want to go back into the actual numbers here. It sounds like. They've actually stepped up how much money is going to be allotted to UConn uh, more than they had in, in 2022 and 23, which is $776 million in state funding uh, in the upcoming two fiscals. But, yeah, that's right. yeah. but, but what we're seeing is that there's actually less of the pandemic dollars. So I just wanted to qualify, quantify this. That's why I brought it up. So totally it looked like it, and this is in Dan's column, billion or something like that that they got in 22 and 23. And where they're talking about the shortfall is that there's still going to be some pandemic relief dollars, but it's not going to be something like $200 million like it was last time. So that's That's where we get between 194 and 195, Dan. That's right. There are three sources of money. One is the regular block grant from the general fund. The other is the pandemic. And the third was sharing of the state's surplus. So UConn last year got $750 million in a basic grant, $200 million in uh, ARPA money, and $124 million in shared money. Just, hey, we, hey, we did great. Here's a, here's a little bit of money, you know, just like you, you give to your kid, right? Feeling rich today. Take, take $10 and go to the movies, right? So this year it's down by $195 million total, but the block grant is up. So what do you call that? Well, it gets really complicated when the governor's office accuses UConn of spending the money on per permanent operations when they should have spent it on one-time stuff. And UConn responds by saying, but that's what you told us to do. 
So because you negotiated a $200 million increase for our professors that we got to find that money. So that's the that's the dispute. And at the at the Connecticut State University and college system, state college and university system, it's even more complicated because enrollment is down, which I think Jonathan can talk about. Yeah, no, it's been a, it's been a concern for years, as Dan knows, that, you know, uh, the numbers just aren't fleshing out. And, and I certainly stress that in my column, too, that, you know, we have to find a, a pathway to go beyond the traditional age students. Right. It's no secret. Um, you know, we're just not seeing the numbers and we won't for a while. I think the prediction is almost a decade from now where we'll see finally an increase in terms of traditional age students. So we have to really consider the older students and certainly even the military students and, and other students, especially online options, too. That's all on the table. Hey, just really quickly, what I wanted to say was that in your column, Jonathan, you say that UConn's different uh, from the rest of the uh, the universities in the system, or at least from the rest of the uh, from, from most of the uh, the. Uh, colleges and universities in the system. There's 17 community colleges, something like that. 12, but, actually. Yes. 12, and sorry. The, the, the regional state universities would be, yeah. But the but UConn is so different because, and, and Mike Anthony got to this, uh, and, and you linked to it in your column, there's something like a 350% increase in applications to UConn from 1996 that happens to be a year after Gino's team uh, first won with uh, Jen Rosati and Rebecca Lobo, the national championship, and, of course, Ray Allen being on campus for the UConn men, to now. Uh, so that's about a 350% increase in applications. They got sports, and that's why they could say something like, hey, maybe we won't play in downtown Hartford anymore. Is that what makes UConn different, or, or, or what, what are your thoughts here? Well, that and of course, as, as you know, Frankie, I, I also emphasize the political dimensions to their, you know, board of trustees there because they clearly have some politics involved there, and that's not unusual for you know, quote unquote, flagship state universities. I mean, my, you know, you see something similarly play out at my alma mater at Rutgers University, where the governor and his staff and administrators get in, in the weeds of things. Well, no, it's no different in UConn. I mean, you know, I certainly emphasize how the Ritter family has been well known as former and current speaker of our House of Representatives in terms of how they often play a hand in it. And then anybody that the governor puts in there is almost expected. So I think it's interesting that that kind of played out uh, beyond as you're, you know, admitting the recognition of the university and getting the name out there. Also, how they've gone through so many presidents in the last few years. I, I, I couldn't even keep track. I, I don't know if any alum could keep track. Uh, at UConn or even administrator, faculty member, because they went through a flurry of presence in the last few years with some of the politics that took place for their board. And we had too much fun here. So I have to wrap up soon because I'm, I love talking about this whole thing because I thought it was I thought it was fascinating that UConn came out in the position that it did. Uh, essentially, yes. <laughs> uh, to, to spoil Jonathan's column a little bit, I want to make sure people read it. But uh, I think the, the, the tenor here is that this could come down to politics and essentially uh, they, the lawmakers may hope that UConn, uh, I guess, is, is forgiven and, and, and forgets about it soon. But just really quickly, because I want to bring Lisa in here before I wrap up, I want to just ask Lisa this last question here. When we think about education and higher ed, Lisa, it sounds like higher ed is getting less funding as we go here. Is that correct? Where does where are we on on uh, student loan debt and the and the conversation I guess to to get people more money so that they can move on and 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 get into work sooner after college? Right, exactly what we talked about in the segment in the last segment is that that you know federal ARPA money is going away for higher education. That's the fight that's playing out with UConn. But at least when we look at a national picture with higher education, 
the Biden administration has is trying to do student loan debt relief uh, for, for some federal loans and depending on income. And so that's just tied up right now because of all the legal challenges. It's actually going to go before the Supreme Court next Tuesday. And so that has been one way, I think, beyond just the federal money for higher institution, higher education institutions that we're seeing, trying to see some relief go directly towards students and uh, especially for Pell Grant holders who just uh, happen to be, it's lower income, it especially helps people of color. And so that is kind of where the national focus is right now on higher education. And we'll just see what happens with all these court cases. I appreciate that, Lisa. And I'm actually going to bring Dan back in here because we got a, a fan question. A good friend at Con Connection, Kathy Flaherty, asks us on Twitter. She wants to ask you a question, Dan. She's looking at you. Maybe she's thinking about that fire sauce that you put, that Taco Bell fire sauce that you put in your uh, oatmeal today. She I has did. a very serious question, though. She asks, "What the, this this measure of equity that you have? How does it apply to people who are unable to work due to disability?" How about the enforced poverty we trap people with disabilities into maintain eligibility for programs? You have any thoughts? Yeah, equity is not just that? about work. You don't. I don't. I didn't mean to imply or state that we forget about the people who aren't working. It's equity is. I, I meant to use work as a as a piece of the analogy. That is, what is the what is your present condition versus what is your condition as compared to the richest of the rich who are here to our benefit. Uh, not necessarily some a, a system we would design. Uh, I quickly just want to say that I was at the game last night and President uh, Renenka Merrick was there and in very high profile and a number of legislators were there. And after the close loss, one of the legislators came up to me and said, that's it. She doesn't get her money. <laughs> so that sports matters. <laughs> it was a joke, but it matters. It certainly does, because that, at the end of the day, especially if they're playing in Hartford, uh, Dan and everybody else on this call, Dan, Jonathan, and Lisa, is the point that uh, after a long day, lawmakers can saunter on over to the uh, the Excel Center and, and watch the game. But uh, maybe that'll go away. Who knows? Uh, doesn't sound like it will anytime soon. But thank you so much to uh, Lisa for joining us, the federal policy reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, Dan Har. Connecticut uh, Hearst Media Associate Editor. He also works for uh, CT Insider, we call it as well. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Thank you. After the break, NPR National Correspondent Jennifer Ludden and Connecticut Mirror Children's Issues and Housing Reporter Ginny Monk. They're going to join Jonathan for a conversation. We're going to center it around housing and equity. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public. I'm Frankie Graziano. This hour, we're exploring how Governor Lamont's state budget proposal meets a new law, calling for an explanation of how spending would reduce socioeconomic and racial inequality where we live. And if you were listening to that uh, earlier segment we had, we had Dan Haar from CT Insider who tells us that the way it manifested in this budget was it was an eight-page document explaining how inequity was addressed uh, at the top of the budget. One of the biggest issues defining and driving those inequalities is housing. 
and some $600 million earmarked for this in Governor Lamont's proposal. Here to discuss this on the state level is Ginny Monk, Connecticut Mirror's children's issues and housing reporter. Good morning, Ginny. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming on. And Jennifer Ludden, uh, NPR national correspondent covering economic inequality with a focus on housing disparities and food insecurity. And per her NPR bio, I really appreciate this, that you seek to explain the growing gap between socioeconomic groups and government policies to try and change it. Thank you so much for the work that you do, Jennifer. Thank you and good morning. Good morning. And of course, we're we're still joined by Jonathan Wharton. Uh, I, I, I still hope you're with us, Jonathan. I am still here. The the uh, the the conversation on campus didn't take you away. I appreciate that. And you can join the conversation if you're listening to us. 888-720-9677. 888-720-9677. Ginny, $600 million for affordable housing. Can you help break this down? Sure. So there's uh, a few different funds it's, it's going to. There's $100 million, and this is all spent over two years, so... Hundred million would be fifty million each year uh, for the state's time to own program, which is a down payment assistance program for low and moderate income households. There's two hundred million to expand workforce development housing, a uh, hundred million for the housing trust fund, and, and notably, um, this this portion includes multi-unit housing in downtowns close to transportation hubs, which has been a, a zoning reform push this session. And another two hundred million for flexible housing needs. It's good to hear about the the, the housing trust fund there. Uh, but the the big concern that that everybody has uh, with this with with affordable housing, I guess anywhere you look, is going to be with zoning and the budget address that Lamont delivered. The governor Lamont delivered. He talked about encouraging local municipalities to do more on zoning and 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 the regulations that they have. So. I guess this is where I kind of want to pivot to pivot to Jennifer before we talk about this new budget law. Do you see a lot of this kind of lip service nationally, or like are 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 or state lawmakers, state officials, kind of tied back to their hands to what municipalities and counties can really do on zoning? So there's there's more than lip service. There's a lot happening, and it it is very contentious. You know, uh, just to step back for a minute, I mean zoning laws in this country, you know, they, they, they have a whole history of inequality, right? They go back to, um, you know, redlining uh, generations ago um, in many, if not most American cities, a good three quarters of the residential land is specifically zoned for single families only. That happened after housing discrimination based on race was outlawed. So the city said, well, okay, you can only have a single family home. And de facto, that kept out a lot of homeowners of color and lower income homeowners. And we do see a lot of debates happening now that we have this incredible housing crunch and everyone is feeling the impact of a lack of housing and rates have just, you know, shot up, prices have shot up so high, both for rentals and home owning. We've had three states in the past few years, um, California, Oregon, and Maine have actually ended single family only mandates statewide. And a, a number of cities have done it and a lot of cities are debating it. And it, it's tough. People, you know, living on a beautiful tree line suburban street don't want change to their neighborhood. And yet, if you look, there's incredible disconnect with our, as houses have kind of gotten bigger and bigger. I mean, if 
I'm sure you're seeing it in Connecticut, kind mm -hmm. of the economics of construction demand that everything get bigger to kind of justify the home builder's expense. Our uh, households have shrunk in this country today. Almost two thirds of them are only one or two people. You've got a lot of aging seniors and a lot of uh, millennials. And so there's a real disconnect and a real struggle to say, OK, how can we open up this land with this, this zoning regulations to allow in some more multifamily units? And and from reporting here locally, I've seen that it's one or two people living in, on average, in Connecticut, a three hundred and eighty thousand dollar home i i want to just bring in uh jonathan and jenny real quick on on the on the housing on on the zoning uh front uh i want to be fair to the state and try to get this uh and 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 try to talk about this more thoroughly jenny do you think this the governor's doing all he can here on on zoning and trying to get you know towns like westport and and uh and i guess woodbridge to to try to hold up their end of the bargain what do you think so it's an interesting question because the the governor with this budget um, is essentially saying he he supports uh, encouraging through some financial incentives uh, changes to zoning law um, that that's sort of what we saw with the housing trust fund particularly for uh, increasing residential density in downtowns near transportation hubs but there's also been a real push in the state to tell municipalities, we're not going to encourage you, we're going to tell you, you have to change the zoning. So whether he's doing all he can, I, I think this is significant within the confines of mm. encouraging through financial incentives, but he's not making municipalities do anything. We spoke with Aaron Box, she's the executive director for the Open Communities Alliance about the budget's housing priority. She said, the budget addresses the housing crisis in terms of affordability and segregation, but said she has concerns about the scope of affordable housing in making long-term and systemic changes. We'll play that clip for you. In particular, though, I think it's important to look at the extent to which any of these proposals are designed to create housing that will be deed-restricted as affordable for decades to come. And typically, and that's going to be a lot of this housing, um, and typically that is going to be more likely to be in denser configurations. And so if you're not allowed to have denser housing in most of the state, then we're going to end up with segregation. We're going to be reinforcing our lines of segregation. Considering the growing consensus around the need for affordable housing, if we want the kind of sustained economic development that Governor Lamont talks about, uh, we can't be satisfied with the status quo when it comes to zoning. I think this gets into a, a larger battle that Jennifer's covered here. I just want to I, I want to really get to the thorny issue of, of affordable housing. One recent headline, the U.S. needs more affordable housing. Where to put it is a where to put it is a bigger battle. Yes, and and uh, people don't want it next to them. <laughs> Generally, I mean that hasn't really changed. Although I will say there there that has been the case for many many years. You actually also have this counter push. They call themselves the Yimbies, the Yes in My Backyard. Yeah. They really are pushing their their local officials to bring in more housing. So there's there's quite a debate happening now. The question is that as your speaker there alluded to, you know. Is it going to be affordable? So when we, you know, um, the the Turner Center at UC Berkeley looked at what's happening so far in places that have opened up their zoning, and there's 
there's for many, many different reasons, there's not, um, it's been really slow to take off so far for a lot of uh, technical design and land use things that they may or may not have done. But one question is most of this, it's market rate, right? So like in Portland, Oregon, you can build up to four units, you can build a little more, you can build up to six units if you make sure that three of them are deemed for affordable housing with uh, subsidies. But largely it's market rate. And so even a market you know, duplex or triplex, it's pretty pricey and it's not going to be cheap enough for some of, you know, workers who talk about workforce housing, people who live, you know, work and teachers and firefighters and government workers, they still may not be able to afford this. And supporters will say, well, look, we're thinking long term, this duplex or triplex in 30 years, it's going to be older and it'll be more affordable. So it's a real um, you know, there's short-term urgent needs, uh, plus this long-term outlook, and and it's it's not an easy fix. Jonathan, uh, we've talked here about where to put affordable housing. We've also talked about the state's plans to address affordable housing. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, uh, Hugh Bailey put together a great editorial. Uh, he's actually uh, my editor over at uh, Connecticut Post, and uh, it came out about a week and a half ago. And he actually came out against, or was really concerned, Kind of both ways about the governor's pitch towards this that more money and more pathways could have been dealt with to address the issues around affordable housing uh, in truth especially in connecticut as everybody's mentioning and i want to add to this there is a dimension and a negative stigma associated with affordable housing because the assumption is that affordable housing is just for you know the poor people or less desirable whatever you want to label um, so many people who are low income. But in fact, it's really more for the workforce housing. It's as you all are speaking towards and certainly those in the public sector. Unfortunately, that gets lost in all of this. Uh, I will say that in some instances, in some places, and we need to remember this, especially in Connecticut, you know, it compares differently. Like if you look at Maryland and New Jersey, they base a lot of this surrounding county government. We don't have county government here per se, as it relates to an issue like this. So this goes back to the local concerns surrounding zoning. And it's gonna be very difficult to kind of carve out niches or places to do this. I will give credit to places like New Haven, for example, where I was on the city planning, city plan commission, where- Lisa I gotta jump in here. You got about 10 seconds or less because we gotta wrap up, go ahead. Transit-oriented development to do a lot of these kind of initiatives. So I think that's a good beginning point that they can do. Thank you, Jonathan. And I just want to turn people towards Ginny's reporting because she just covered this uh, this CAP hearing that they had or this housing hearing at the Capitol. So go to uh, ctmirror.org to learn more because it's important as they're talking about a potential fair rent cap that may be about 4% plus inflation. Thank you so much for listening to Where We Live Today. Thank you to Cat Pastor and Katie Pellico for producing today's show. You're listening to Where We Live. Take care. Have a nice day. <laughs>